You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Sell-off, what sell-off? Stocks are once again nearing all-time highs. The Dow and the S&P now within 1% of their records. But big fund managers are now the most bearish they've been in quite some time. We'll look at what that means for the market. And Bitcoin rising again today, just shy of its own record high back in April as the first Bitcoin futures ETF starts trading. What the head of the SEC said today about the future of crypto regulation. And we'll speak with a crypto specialist who says a futures-based fund is very unfriendly to retail investors. Plus, which retailers can weather the supply chain snarls, the company that could be the next meme stock, and Goldman's got a new conviction buy. All that and more in today's rapid fire. But let's kick things off with the markets. Down at the NYSE today with Michael Santoli. Mike? Yeah, uh, Kelly, obviously uh, mostly green here. The big growth stocks providing uh, more than their share of the push uh, higher. We're, as you said, within 1% of the all-time highs, the S&P 500, September 2nd, 45.45 intraday high. I think it's 45.36 as a closing high on the same day. One question, uh, is the market going to follow the seasonal script perfectly two years in a row? Last year and this year, September 2nd high, sell-off for three weeks into September, a bounce, a further decline, and then a recovery. Last year, we didn't get done with the downside until October. October 30th. That was right before the election. Right here, it looks pretty textbook the way this is working out. Uh, so I, you'd have to say you give the benefit of the doubt to some of the seasonal advantages. One thing I'll amend, uh, Kelly, that B of A fund manager survey, those fund managers were really bearish a week and two weeks ago. That's when the survey was done. That was here, not where we are right now. So that tells you something about market psychology. Take a look at some of the style and sector moves here. Banks versus technology. Uh, they've kind of each had their moments over the course of of the year. Banks obviously built up their advantage earlier on, making new highs, usually pretty bullish. Tech still below the highs, but actually have outperformed this month. It has not been a very clear growth versus value split right now. We have Treasury yields higher but below their highs from the spring. We'll see if that gets sorted out uh, as we move along. Crude oil, of course, big mover, getting a little bit overbought, getting look, getting stretched on the charts. But, boy, that's a very, very strong trend right here. Does it say more about demand than supply? We don't really know. So far, the markets are able to absorb it. One final point, we were at these levels back in 2014. In fact, we spent all of 2010 through 2014 above $80 a barrel in oil, obviously with a smaller economy and with consumers uh, with lower income. So maybe that's a silver lining, Kelly. All right. And Mike, you teased that fund manager survey. We'll talk about it right now. Thank you, sir. As he yep. mentioned, Bank of America's latest fund manager survey is the least bullish it's been in a year, with managers reporting cash levels now at a 12-month high. Some of the other findings include 85% expecting higher short-term rates and a Fed rate hike next year, 48% of respondents saying inflation is the biggest risk to stocks. There's also a big rotation out of healthcare and staples and into the banks and energy, the so-called value trade. Joining me now to discuss is Kim Forrest. She's chief investment officer at Bokeh Capital Markets. Kim, welcome. How does that line up with your own thinking? Well, uh, I think they're probably a little short-sighted and probably missed a lot of the news that um, inflation isn't quite as hot as everybody anticipated maybe a couple weeks ago. We got some data um, at the end of last week that really validated. Um, we have inflation, but it's not super hot. Which, just remind me which of those data points. I mean, it's, it's been interesting as well because I think there's this question even for something like retail sales. Is it strong because there's actually strong consumer demand or is it just higher prices? Right. Well, I mean, no doubt inflation is hotter than we've had probably for a decade, right? But it is in line and it wasn't, I think it was both PMI and CPI, um, both 
um, were lower than the analysts had expected, right? So it was lower than the average, although it was still high. And I think that kind of is showing us some of the inflation and not all of the inflation is transitory. And we have a lot in the uh, supply chain that's causing everybody uh, issues and you know that affects prices. It just does. What about the sectors they're talking about? Are the banks and energy attractive to you? Um, well, we're running right now a sector neutral strategy where we try to match up with the uh, or our holdings with the uh, S and P 500. So we have to own those. I think having uh, earlier bought energy, I feel pretty good about that. And same thing about the banks. I think they are good, but that really feels like a short-term trade, not a longer-term trade that we kind of do. Tell me what do you do like for the longer term? Is it industrials? Well, it's, it is industrials, and we're going to be um, really watching those uh, earnings very carefully, um, as well as technology. You know that's a big favorite of mine. But here's the thing. What we're looking for in any company, and that's an energy company, a bank, or industrials, and, and technology, is how they use technology. So what we really want to do is find companies that are well-run, and we've found that technologies that create, and more importantly, deploy technology well, are winners in the long term. They can survive things like short-term cash or uh, inflation because they're doing already what they can to not waste money and to not just chase things. They're, they have a good plan and they're executing well. Sure, and we've talked about Xilinx before, which I know is one that you like, but yes. sort of sticking with the industrials theme, what about 3M? I mean, is this a company you're already buying or you're looking, to, you're waiting to pounce? Well, um, we bought it earlier this year and we really like it because of its global uh, reach, first of all. And we feel that it's just a really well-run company and it understands what its clients want to have out of that company. So we think it's just a, a well-run company. It did trade higher this year. It's off a bit. And, um, you know, we're always looking to add when stocks go on sale. All right. So finally, if we are looking for companies like 3M, sort of at the industrials more broadly, does that mean you think we're coming out of this fundamentally in good macro shape? Well, the macro is always a question. You know, the latest um, news from uh, China and their lower GDP, you know, that's concerning, not just because um, China is a big and becoming a consumer-oriented market, but more that it signals what the, um, their demand is for their products. So that is uh, kind of a global question mark. Um, take a longer view. I think that will serve you best as an investor, and that's what we do. So I do think things are um, still improving. We have, um, you know, signs that things aren't as dire as we thought maybe last month. And uh, we'll see at the end of this earnings season by listening to what all these companies say about what the future brings, and uh, we'll know then. And we'll see at the end of the month if the rest of the fund managing space uh, changes their mind and agrees with you. Yeah. Kim, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Kim Forrest with Boca. Now to Netflix. The company reports results after the bell, and the stock has seen a massive run. It's up about 25% in two months, outperforming all the other mega cap tech names. And analysts like what they see ahead of results. Today, Bank of America says it's confident in Netflix's return to strong growth, maintaining their buy rating and $680 price target. Barclays highlighting the company's history of top-line beats. UBS, Morgan Stanley, Baird, and Piper Sandler 
all raising their price targets this past week, with Piper the most bullish, hiking theirs to 705. Evercore ISI adding the stock to its tactical outperform list. And Goldman, a little more cautious, maintaining their neutral rating, saying the success of Squid Games has heightened investor expectations. I think it's heightened everybody's. For more on what to expect today, Julia Borson is here with three key numbers to watch. Julia? Well, Kelly, with the record-breaking viewers for Squid Game, investors are hoping that Netflix will jumpstart its growth. Analysts are expecting Netflix to grow revenue 16% to $7.5 billion on a 47% increase in earnings per share. Now, the other key number to watch is subscribers. Netflix projected it would add 3.5 million subscribers in the third quarter. And even more important is what subscriber guidance the company gives for the fourth quarter. Analysts forecast 8.5 million additions for Q4 as the company rolls out even more content. Now, we're also listening for commentary on what's next for games, competition, and content investment, Kelly. But back to growth sounds like it's the main thing. And how would you compare this with the story around Disney these days where people seem to be pulling in? I think it was uh, Morgan Stanley earlier this week concerned that maybe their subscriber growth numbers are, you know, the gloss is coming off a little bit. Yeah, so the tale of two very different streaming services right now. The question for Netflix for so long was how much had they pulled forward growth? The company had disappointing results in the first two quarters of the year, and they said, look, it's because of production delays. We're going to have so much new content hitting in the second half of the year, that's Q3 and Q4, that they anticipated they were going to see a really big uptick in subscriber additions. So now the question is, how saturated is the U.S. market? Do big hits like Squid Game show that there is more potential here in North America, which is a very saturated market? And what kind of growth are they going to see internationally? The other question that we might hear addressed by Netflix is what's their pricing power? Maybe they can't add that many more subscribers here in the U.S., but maybe they see opportunity to raise prices down the line. Now, Disney is a different situation, much less content, but their content is much more high, high profile, familiar brands, and maybe would say more popular content, even though they have less of it. Disney also has that struggle of getting enough new content out there to help them add subscribers. And Bob Chapek, of course, warned that they were going to be hitting their long-term targets, but near-term to expect choppiness. Mm. Choppiness, Kelly, of course, makes investors worried. Yeah, they, we don't like choppiness. No one likes choppiness. Uh, I guess on that uh, point, Julia, have they kind of quelled the rumors? These rumors about spinning off ESPN have been around for a long time, certainly going back a year, maybe two years now. Um, the company, I think you spoke with them earlier this week, and they tried to once again say that's not on the table. Well, look, analysts have for a while said that it would be a great idea to spin off ESPN. Disney has not commented on these reports. There was a report that Disney was looking to spin off ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. A source that I spoke to close to the situation told me that this was not in the works because Disney has been investing very much in different things for ESPN+, Plus, including sports betting, which would grow the value of ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. And they just made some new deals, including for the NHL. They also have more NFL rights. So that Disney really sees a lot of value in ESPN and ESPN Plus, so that that's not in the works for now. Although, Kelly, who knows what the media landscape's gonna look like in 10 years. I know. So I wouldn't make any bets that far out. But for now, it seems like Disney really wants to grow the value 
uh, of those assets. All right, Julia, thank you very much. Disney shares down about half a percent today. Again, had an earlier, uh, tougher time earlier this week. And Netflix after the bell tonight. Coming up, the first ever Bitcoin futures ETF making its public debut. It's up about three and a half percent right now over net asset value. Up next, we'll speak to the CEO of a crypto-friendly bank about her concerns about this product for retail investors. Plus, online ticket marketplace Vivid Seats hitting the market via SPAC today. That's just one of the names billionaire Todd Bowles has in numerous entertainment and media holdings. We'll speak with him about the merger, the future of media, sports, and more. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Take a look at the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, BITO, B-I-T-O it is. Uh, The first Bitcoin futures ETF started trading today, and it's up about 3.5% right now. While it's not a direct investment in Bitcoin, it is considered a major step towards legitimizing trading in the crypto. Just last week, Kathy Wood's ARK Invest gave its brand name to a planned Bitcoin futures fund. But last night, Invesco pulled its plan to offer a rival product with no explanation. All of this buzz has the crypto climbing to its highest level since April 15th. There's Bitcoin 63,466, just about 100 bucks or 1,000 bucks shy of its all-time high. Earlier on Squawk on the Street, SEC Chair Gary Gensler explained why he endorsed the Bitcoin futures ETF, but is still calling for tougher regulation. I think that... We in the official sector uh, should be uh, technology neutral, but not policy neutral. And so what we're trying to do is ensure to the best we can within our authorities to bring uh, projects into the investor protection perimeter. Joining me now with more on the impact across the financial sector and for investors, Caitlin Long is the chair and CEO of Avanti Bank, a crypto-friendly bank. Caitlin, it's, uh, Caitlin, I'm sorry, great to have you today. Um, but Thank you. Do you think it's really the retail investor who's interested in this product, or is it more for institutions who really can't deal with straight Bitcoin? Well, certainly a lot of institutions like 401k plans and, and some IRAs need the product rather than, than Bitcoin itself. Uh, but there's certainly also a lot of retail interest in, in this. Uh, what, what everyone should be aware of, though, as you correctly said in the intro, is that this is not Bitcoin. It's not the same thing. And very likely the returns, if passed as prologue, are going to lag actual underlying Bitcoin by a quarter to a third. So there's a big tracking error in futures-based ETFs, uh, in, in, in commodities, cash-settled futures-based ETFs. And everyone should expect that. Would you be more in favor of what would we call it, a a cash Bitcoin ETF? Or do you really believe not your keys, not your coin? If you want Bitcoin, literally physically try to take custody of it and don't get involved with these kinds of products. Well, there are definitely that is definitely the best way to own Bitcoin uh, because you don't have counterparty risk. Bitcoin is an asset that's not anyone's IOU. And as a result, you have the ability to be your own bank, to own it yourself, but you do have to take personal responsibility to educate yourself, invest in yourself in the knowledge of how to manage your private keys. Uh, the problem is 
that many don't want to do that. And as a result, uh, we typically, uh, they're looking for, for wrapped products like this. Uh, however, there are better ways to own Bitcoin than, than, uh, than a cash-settled futures ETF. Sure, although it's understandable that a lot of people don't want to deal with all the steps of physical custody and that kind of thing. Um, let me just pivot. And, you know, again, as somebody who's kind of a, a, a I don't want to call you a diehard, but maybe a longtime uh, Bitcoiner, what are your concerns about the price action today, specifically about some of the leverage, um, you know, kind of the credit creation within the system? I thought you had a great line the other day about how people always warned that Wall Street would ruin crypto. But, you know, it's crypto itself where we're seeing this kind of speculative activity. What are your concerns? That's right. We this is the first bull market happening post happening bull market where we've seen leverage. Uh, for those who are not familiar, Bitcoin does have a very distinct four-year cycle that is tied to what's called the halvening, where, it, where the inflation rate of Bitcoin is cut in half every approximately four years. And we typically see big bull markets coming not that long after the, the, the halvening. The last one was in May 2020. And this is following the, the, the previous historical pattern uh, really pretty, pretty well. Uh, and so what we've seen, though, this time is that because of all the financialization, we're seeing a lot of leverage that has entered into these markets. And it can cause price swings. Uh, and certainly, I would, I would say in the, in the last few days, there have been a lot of investors waiting for the ETF approval. It is a positive sign, but it is a double-edged sword for the reasons we talked about earlier, where we're getting a lot more paper claims to Bitcoin than there are real Bitcoins. And there is no lender of last resort for Bitcoin. There's no one who will ever make more than 21 million of them. It's impossible at this point. And, and therefore, there's a lot more risk uh, at, of, of the price being swung around this time. And we don't know what it's going to do without a lender of last resort uh, in the next correction. And what would you say then to people who are looking to get in these days? I mean, and is there a reason why Bitcoin should be in a sort of class of its own when there's so many others to, to now pick from? Well, it's interesting because uh, uh, there is there's a very good argument for Bitcoin to go higher. And uh, again, as fast as prologue with the with bull markets, we've seen that uh, that it can go quite a lot higher. And uh, bull markets definitely tend to surprise people on the upside. However, the bear market drawdowns, I, I just uh, put out a tweet referring to Pantera Capital's chart. The average bear market drawdown is 68% from the, from the peak. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of price, price volatility. What we don't know about this time is how much the leverage is going to amplify that. There's a lot more liquidity, a lot more ways to buy Bitcoin, including now uh, the ETF where you can get exposure to the price differences. Again, that's not real Bitcoin. But uh, what we don't know is how those are going to perform I just saw in, in an article in the FT today a reference to over collateralization of 30% on Bitcoin backed loans. But when the average bear market drawdown is 68%, you can see how that math doesn't quite work. Sure. Uh, and, and some that have that kind of leveraged exposure might not survive the next bear market. So caveat emptor, do your homework. One of the great things about crypto Twitter is there have been so many people explaining to investors for free uh, the, the, the issues with investing in futures-based ETFs. So go educate yourself. There's no substitute for that. It would be a wild ride if we have something like a 75% drawdown, which is not, you know, it's not what you're saying, but kind of directionally hinting at, at sort of what's how the system is set up. Uh, Caitlin, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time today and kind of explaining some of the architecture to us and this uh, latest product. We appreciate it. 
Thank you. My pleasure. Caitlin Long is the chair and CEO of Avanti Bank. Coming up, Senate Democrats are expected to propose a new threshold for bank accounts to report inflows and outflows to the IRS after a big blowback. We have the latest details from D.C. when we come back. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're pretty close to session highs. Dow's up 180, 200. High watermark so far of the day. We're up 31 at the lows. Half a percent gain. Dow's actually trailing the S&P and NASDAQ, both of which are up about seven-tenths of one percent. Here are some of the movers we're watching this hour. The Semiconductors ETF, the SMH, higher again today. Up, uh, there it is, about, no, that's NXP. Anyway, the whole sector's up about 2%. Uh, it's only about 3% away from last month's record. Corvo on NXP, KLA, Lamb are all participating. Speaking of chips, Marvell is hitting a record high after Jim Cramer said he's trimming his charitable trust position in the stock as a way to raise cash. It's gaining about one and a quarter percent today. Jim says he's locking in a gain of 180%. He's still a long-term believer in the name and would be a buyer, he says, on a pullback. If you want more of those insights, you can read all about Jim Cramer's trades in his new newsletter, the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up by heading to cnbc.com slash investing club or pointing your phone's camera at that QR code on the screen. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Kelly, thank you. And here's what's happening at this hour. Near Houston, a jet with 21 people on board crashed and caught fire. A McDonnell Douglas MD-87 failed to gain altitude when it tried to take off from Houston's executive airport. The FAA says all passengers and crew escaped and only one person was injured. South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdaugh has been denied bail and ordered to receive a psychological evaluation. This in connection with the second set of charges he has faced since finding his wife and son dead last June. Prosecutors allege Murtaugh used insurance payments meant for sons of his housekeeper to instead pay off his own debts. And Facebook has agreed to the largest civil penalty ever to settle claims it discriminated against U.S. workers by reserving jobs for immigrants. Facebook will pay four and three quarter million dollars to the federal government and up to nine and a half million dollars to eligible victims. And China says rocks it brought back from the moon show lunar volcanic activity lasted far longer than previously thought. Scientists say the volcanoes were still erupting on the moon until two billion years ago. That's about 800 million years later than current estimates. And on the news, the $10 billion replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope and what makes it the most complicated science mission ever launched. That's tonight on the news with Shep Smith at 7 Eastern. Kelly, back to you. The next frontier, Tyler, thanks. And there could be a new meme stock on the horizon. We'll talk about that in Rapid Fire next, plus home furnishing headaches and something Walmart this way comes. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines today, Chris Grisanti of MAI Capital Management joins us, along with CNBC's Courtney Reagan and Bob Bassani joining us from the NYSE. First up, Goldman Sachs swapping in Walmart for Target on its conviction list. They're saying increased profitability and U.S. grocery market share are reasons to be bullish on Walmart, adding, and this is one of the great 
pair trades of the year. The stock has underperformed. It's hovering around break-even compared with Target's gains of 43%. So Goldman did reiterate its buy rating on Target, just removed it from the conviction list mainly on outsized growth. Chris, which one would you be a buyer of? Uh, Kelly, I like this call. Uh, I, I think that Walmart has way underperformed not only Target, but also the S&P since the beginning of last year. I think both are great managements. I wouldn't sell my Target, but I would pick up some Walmart here. I think they're the only ones that online can possibly even come close to Amazon with uh, their logistics and other delivery methods. So I like the Walmart call. Bob, what would you add to that? If we zoom out, it'll show that Walmart was a great performer in 2020. Yeah. So part of this has been a pandemic hangover effect. I, I think the call makes sense as a relative value trade, but I, I think there's something obvious going on here. Walmart, uh, Target's doing better than Walmart because, number one, it has a much better home furnishings department, in my opinion. And number two, I think the average consumer perceives that Target is a better shopping experience. My, my wife, there is a Walmart and a Target equidistance from my house. My wife always goes to Target because she just likes the shopping experience better. I don't think, uh, I'm not saying anything against Walmart, but I think the public perceives that and that's been a factor in them taking market share. And Courtney, where are the companies on this battle, which is, it's, is kind of for, to become one of the big main players in this category? You know, there's Amazon and they might go physical. There's obviously Walmart and Target expanding their online ordering and pickup options. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, a lot of the points that have been made here are good ones, of course. Target definitely has um, a, a bigger and more significant discretionary business when it when it comes to the percent of total sales than Walmart does. Remember, Walmart is a very important player in the grocery category, which does drive repeat trips. And that's something that I think we do need to pay attention to. And that is very important. Walmart had been working on the buy online, pick up uh, grocery order well before the pandemic. Target had been doing that for non-grocery categories. So they both have some competencies in that area, albeit in slightly different silos. Um, and I think that when you look at Walmart, Walmart stock does seem to behave much more like a consumer staple, especially as of late. And Target does seem to behave more like a consumer discretionary mm -hmm. player, although they are both staples because of those different focuses, if you will, when it comes to the categories. That's a great point. They're so similar and yet so different. And maybe there's something for everybody, depending on what the investor is looking for. All right, let's move along. Bank of America says demand for certain so-called hard lines retailers has been above their expectations. But still, they say some companies are better positioned than others. They say there's relative safety in services like Mr. Car Wash as they are less reliant on the supply chain. They also like home improvement names like Home Depot and Lowe's and say that specialty retailers like Best Buy, Joanne Fabrics and Petco could go over the hump in a good way when it comes to inventory concerns. The biggest losers in all this are home furnishers like Bed Bath and & Beyond and Williams Sonoma as they continue to deal with low inventory. So, Courtney, is, is this a case where there's still strong demand across the board, but it's just a question of who can supply the product? Because there are plenty of questions about the housing cycle still. Absolutely. And, and I do think that this is an interesting call when they particularly are pointing out Bed Bath & Beyond versus Best Buy. And I know, Kelly, that you're la going to laugh about those tickers like we talked about previously. Always. It's always very confusing for us. But um, if you think about Best Buy, of course, they are sort of this 
last man standing in a sense when it comes to a physical consumer electronics retailer. Of course, yes, they have their, their online operations, but they really became a standout player in the pandemic. And CEO Corey Berry was on the Today Show just last week saying, look, inventory is not going to be a problem for us. We've got 50% more inventory this holiday than last in, than last holiday, 20% more than two years ago. We don't see prices are going to go up. And actually, we think that we could have some pretty good deals coming forward. Wow. So that's a different message than we've heard from a lot of different retailers. But then you've got Bed Bath & Beyond that's really undergoing this big turnaround. And they've got a lot of room potentially to grow, albeit competing in categories that are largely commodity. But those private brands they're trying to use to differentiate themselves. Yeah, that's a. I would love, Bob, to hear some companies talking about, you know, how they're well supplied and able to cut prices. That would tell you there's something very different going on, at least for certain players. Yeah. And what I worried about it, it, for the supply chain, remember, we're really going to get it tested now. We're going into November, December. Stuff's going to start flying off of the shelves. We'll find out what kind of supply chain problems there are. But I really worry about smaller stores. See, you know, you got these Home Depots and Lowe's. They've got hundreds and hundreds of people for supply chain logistics trying to make sure stuff gets delivered to the stores. If you're a smaller store, you're basically waiting for a truck to show up. I think that could be a real problem for a lot of people. You know, the one thing I'm wondering, I'm trying to figure out how to play this, is maybe gift cards will be a big thing this year. If you can't get those Nike sneakers, go out and buy gift cards. Maybe that's an interesting way to play supply chain shortage. Very interesting. All right, moving along is Macy's, the next meme stock. Shares of the retailer dropping 3% today after shooting up 17% yesterday. Recall on talks it could take it, its e-commerce business public. But Gordon Haskett Research says a bigger opportunity would be for Macy's to become the next meme stock. While their trading volume was significantly below GameStop at its peak, the firm cites high short interest and their familiar name as reasons Macy's could be in the sight of retail investors. Chris, what do you think? Well, I think becoming a meme stock, uh, Kelly, is a tough way to make a living. Um, <laughs> I, I think the fundamentals are good for Macy's, unlike some of the other meme stocks. And so retail is a nice place to be now. What I would advise investors, if you're thinking about meme stocks, take a look at the bonds. Obviously, Macy's has shot up in the last week. The bonds have gone nowhere. And, and Macy's still is an investment grade. We haven't seen any upgrades. So that would concern me. So I, I would say buyer beware on Macy's. Bob? Well, I don't understand this whole story. Uh, so I know there's this story Saks is going to spin off its e-commerce business into an IPO, and this is going to be fabulous. Saks is a very different story. They have much fewer stores uh, than Macy's. So I, the, with this whole Macy's idea, how do you spin off this, this idea that you might spin off the e-commerce business? How many stores do they, they have? They must have, they must have six, 700 stores. The distribution for the e-commerce business is the stores. People go pick them up at the stores. They send them out from the stores. If you sever that link, what do you have? You don't, you've got to build up another distribution chain for a different company. I, I don't see how it particularly makes sense, at least with yeah. the other one stores, with some of the other ones that are out there with Saks, you've got a lot fewer stores. Saks has got, they have that guilt, right, Courtney? They've got guilt at the uh, uh, hoitsy-toitsy retail distributor yes. uh, that they've got. <laughs> I totally agree. I don't agree. get it for Macy's. I Am totally I totally agree with Bob on this course. I'm very, very curious to hear your take. Yeah, so Kelly, I've actually spent a lot of the day talking to people on the phone and I'm starting to understand the argument for separating the businesses. I started out in Bob's camp, and I'm not saying that, that Bob doesn't have a good argument, but I do think that is interesting if you think about as an investor that wants a high growth company, you're going to look at some of these online only stores. And if you invest in a Macy's, for instance, you are getting both the physical and the digital experience. And Saks seems to have been able to figure out how to separate the two businesses 
even though the consumer will not feel the difference. And that's the key that Bob, I think, is harping on. If you're a consumer that buys something on Saks.com, you want to be able to take it to the store. And as long as they can fulfill that value proposition, which they say they can, it might make more sense from a value creation standpoint to separate the two companies. Then you have two separate buckets for investment, two separate buckets for employees, for recruitment. You know, someone said to me, look like Disney doesn't necessarily own those cruises, but they manage the experience. Retail is one of the few businesses that is actually still doing everything all together when maybe they really shouldn't be. Bob, you convinced? But, 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 well, the only question is this. Saks has not many stores, right? I mean, how many do they have? Courtney, 60, 70? That's right. Uh, Macy's yeah, they, they must do have, have like 700 yeah, considerably stores? considerably fewer than Macy's. 700 maybe right, for right. Macy's. So, We're talking you, about 10 times as many. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And for many, many years, of course, Macy's has been working along with other retailers to bring these two operations together. And obviously, Macy's started with their physical footprint. Then they created this brick or digital experience. Then they had to figure out a way to bring them together. So what you're doing is sort of re-separating them, but keeping that consumer layer intact. I agree. It sounds really challenging, but people are trying to convince me that Saks has figured out a way to do it. And yeah. in the beginning, yes, it was about value creation, but that now it actually makes an yeah. awful a lot of sense from a business perspective. So, and by the way, oh. big big volume today in Macy's again for the second day. Um, we're going to do probably wow. 35 million shares. They did 50 million yesterday, and it normally does like 16. So there's somebody playing the story. We sure. got to go, but Chris, final word on our way out. Would you buy Macy's e-commerce business if they spun it off? I wouldn't. I think they're late to the game. I, I like what Courtney's saying. I understand it. That's what the market wants you to do. And so they're trying to respond to a market demand. But I don't think it plays to their strengths, frankly. Very, very interesting. We love you, Chris, for keeping it so pithy and short. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. Chris Crisanti, <laughs> Courtney Reagan, and Bob Bassani with a brawl over the future of Macy's. Still ahead, the energy crunch in Europe and Asia, not just boosting the traditional players like oil and gas stocks, will tell you where investors are also piling in right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Uranium stocks are climbing as investors bet on nuclear power amid the ongoing oil and nat gas supply crunch. Pippa Stevens is here with more on the big numbers and movers. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, there's momentum behind uranium stocks after years of investors largely overlooking the space. And this all comes down to what some believe will be nuclear power's vital role in the energy transition. Spot uranium prices topped 50 bucks in September for the first time since 2012, according to data from UXC, and investors are taking note. The North Shore Global Uranium Mining ETF and Global X Uranium ETF are two funds that track the space, and both are up more than 20% for October. Together, these two funds have seen more than $1 billion in inflows this year. The biggest winners this month are Australian microcap names Bannerman Energy and Vimy Resources. Some of the larger players like Kazatomprim, Cameco, and NextGen Energy are also seeing gains. Now, part of the recent rally has been thanks to retail investors, with Uranium mentions jumping on social platforms. But new data from Vandatrack, which tracks retail trading, shows that in the last few weeks, retail traders have slowed their buying. The firm said this points to institutional investors as behind the most recent leg higher. Kelly? And so we've talked about nat gas and oil prices. Come on down. It's so <laughs> nice to be in person, uh, finally. Nat gas and oil, is the crunch lessening at all as we're go kind of 
now going into the winter months? Well, right now, weather is the name of the game, and everything will depend on how the winter weather turns out. But what we're seeing is that what's happening in Europe and Asia is pointing to a need for baseload power source, and that's something like nuclear. Solar and wind are great, but they're intermittent. They can't just be called upon at will. So nuclear is the only viable option, but of course, there are a lot of critics who really don't like nuclear. Uh, and the U.S. is a tough country to make it work. Great in France, but here a, a little bit uh, tougher slog. Pippa, great stuff as always. Thank you, Pippa Stevens, today. You can read her entire story on the uranium names by going to cnbc.com slash pro. Still ahead, ticket marketplace Vivid Seats going public via SPAC today in a deal with Horizon. Up next, we'll talk to Horizon's chairman and CEO, Todd Bailey, about what and where he's seeing opportunity. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Billionaire Todd Bowley's Eldridge Investments has drawn comparisons with Berkshire Hathaway, but their focus is on media, music, real estate, technology, sports, and gaming. Some of their key businesses include DraftKings. Look at all these names. Cloud9, Rolling Stone, Epic Games, and Cirque du Soleil, just to name a few. Joining us now for an exchange exclusive from the Milken Global Conference is Eldridge co-founder and CEO Todd Bowley, along with our very own Brian Sullivan. Brian? Yeah, Kelly, thanks. And, and again, those are just the ones that we know. There's also a SPAC today, Horizon Acquisition, picking up Vivid Seats. Today is the first day. And Todd, personally, and through some holding companies, is a part owner of the Dodgers, got a big game today, and the Lakers, who have a big game tonight. So you kind of got your fingers in everything, Todd. Um, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So what, what are you trying to build with Eldridge? I look at all the pieces. I get them separately. What's the, the whole connection? I mean, ultimately, it's a holding company which makes a diversified pool of investments. And, you know, so we're a permanent vehicle that, you know, is formed by myself and one partner, Hans-Jörg Wies. And our goal is just to make good investments and keep compounding. But I can say there's definitely, it leans entertainment, right? We talked about investments in DraftKings. The Vivid Seats deal, by the way, closing today through Horizon. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you very much. You own the Golden Globes. Dick Clark Entertainment. You're going to redo the Golden Globes. Thank you, because it needs to be uh, a redone. You're going to modernize it. Thank goodness. Um, what is the entertainment side of this for you? Because we're here in Beverly Hills, Todd. Yeah, I mean, L.A. is a great town. I don't know if you've been to the new SoFi, but L.A. continues to up its game. And ultimately, we love content. And we love really good premium content. And yeah, yeah, I've taken over the role as being the interim CEO of the Hollywood Foreign Press, and they're going through a, a great reform process. And I'm speaking to a lot of the publicists about you know, ways that we can better the, the show and better the process. And hopefully they're listening because I feel like some of it feels like they're in glass houses. But Make we're it more to get... inclusive. You're bringing it back more inclusive. Yeah, it we seems have new, like a dated industry. We have new membership, and we've got 21 new members that are all diverse. And yeah, it was uh, dated, but it had yeah. really bad governance, so it couldn't change. So they had to have a crisis in order to change. And now yeah. they're responding to that crisis and you know, going to make great change and be an organization of the future. From an investment perspective, I've called this the everything rally because everything is up in price. Some people don't seem that concerned. How do we know that valuations, because you're, you're a buyer, you've been a net buyer of a lot of things, including this hotel that we're in, by the way, you're not worried about valuations being stretched? Well, right now, our, you know, we're spending a lot more time originating investments, finding things at the ground floor, and then helping them grow. So our, go our job is to get into them early or find something that has a unique story and then being able to execute against it. So yeah. Vivid's a perfect example, right? We knew the ticketing business very well. 
you know, we had reorganized our ticketing when we were at the Dodgers, and Vivid was a, a brand that yeah. we worked closely with. But we got that at what we think is a very compelling value. If you look at the other marketplaces out there, Vivid's at a, like a 40, 50 percent discount to where the other marketplaces changed. So, but how did somebody miss? What did you see that clearly somebody else missed something? Yeah, but it was we had good alignment because the existing shareholders rolled forward. So they're not monetizing their stake. All the money that went into Vivid delevered the balance sheet. So now we have a completely unlevered balance sheet. You know, and we created it. And by the way, the second quarter was a lot better than we expected. Yeah. So they generated, we bought down our purchase price over a whole turn because of how strong the recovery was in the second quarter. So you're betting big on the consumer. Okay, let's say, so I'm out here in California, right? And by the way, I'm a Chargers fan, so I hope to get to SoFi <laughs> someday. Um, if I want to check my Golden Nugget or DraftKings or FanDuel account, I can't do it. I, I, I'm geolocated because there's no sports gambling here. Do you see a day where sports gaming, the sports book is maybe not 50 states, but close? I wouldn't see why it's everywhere. I mean, ultimately, it'll become a competition. And if you don't have entertainment products that people want, they're going to go to different places. But I think every state ultimately will come to the realization that, you know, it's, uh, it's good for their entertainment. When you look out at the, the macro economy, right, hopefully we're all here again together coming out of COVID as well, though the UK is a little bit uh, nerve wracking right now. You are heavily, your flex jet, you've got your vivid seats, you've got your DraftKings, your sports teams as well. Is there anything with the economy, unemployment, COVID, interest rates, anything you see that makes you nervous about the American consumer and GDP the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, listen, you know, no one's ever able to predict what's the thing that knocks everything sideways. So, you know, there's always some type of event that occurs. You don't see anything right now on the horizon. You know, there's a big debate whether it's going to be a trillion dollars or two trillion or three trillion. How much money is coming to upgrade the country? Yeah. Hopefully they get that approved. And of course, that would be tremendous for the economy. So, you know, I'm not worried about the inflationary effects of building and buying all that stuff when everything is already extremely high in price. Yeah, listen, I think steel, copper wiring, whatever it is, you know, but a lot of this is also supply chain issues. So, you know, I think we have to work through a bunch of stuff as we recover from the great stop. Right. The whole machine, our earth stopped for, what, 18 months. Now it's got to get going again. And that's going to take that's going to be bumpy. But I think that there's no reason that growth shouldn't be you know, embedded in, in everything because the consumer's back and wanting to spend. Well, listen, speaking of that, you've got to get going. Kelly Evans' husband, me, big Dodgers fans, you're 0-2. you got Bueller on the mound. you got an afternoon game. Starts in about 20 minutes. You better get out there, Tom. We <laughs> well, need a win today. Yeah, this is a big day. But we got Bueller on the mound, and he's Bueller. a big game player. Bueller, hopefully it's not like that. It's going to be a good day. <laughs> Todd, it's a real much. pleasure. Tom yeah. Boley. Thank you. Here we go. Kelly, you can tell Eric I'm I'm pulling for the Dodgers as well. Time to put it, flip his hat inside out. They got gotta, a big game today. Big you got to get down there, Brian. Is it my imagination? Are you getting a little hoarse after this big week? I was at Virginia Tech last week, screaming here. Yeah, I'm 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 cooked. But we got Howard Marks coming up in about not Richard Marks, that's a singer. Howard Marks in about 15 minutes, and then Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC. Yes. We're gonna have two more big interviews in the next 15 to 20 minutes. And then be you, great. you gotta gotta try I to hope. sneak out to that game. Brian, really appreciate all the all the great work you've been doing. I don't know why I'm saying words Thanks, twice. Kelly. Brian Sullivan right. and Todd Boley. Well, a win for the banks on Capitol Hill today. The changes Democrats are making to a proposal that will impact millions of Americans come tax season are next.
Welcome back. Senate Democrats are altering some key parts of their proposal aimed at recouping billions in lost tax revenue. Elon Moy has the details. Elon? Well, Kelly, Democrats are raising the threshold for when your bank account information would have to be reported to the IRS under the initial plan from the White House. As little as $600 in account transactions over the course of the year could have triggered those new IRS reporting requirements. But that faced some massive pushback from banks, consumers, even moderate Democrats. So today, lawmakers are increasing that threshold to $10,000. And that doesn't include wages, Social Security, or other federal benefits that are already already reported to the IRS. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tweeted that this new plan reflects the administration's strong belief that we should zero in on those at the top of the income scale who don't pay taxes they owe while protecting American workers who do. Republicans, though, are still railing against this plan, no matter what the threshold may be. It's a stupid idea that I hear from Iowans all the time, that they don't want the peering eyes of the IRS snooping on them. The middle class is going to be hurt as a result of this. Well, the banking industry has been fighting this tooth and nail. So, Kelly, today's move just shows you how tough the politics of this proposal really are. Back over to you. So, Elon, let's say somebody is a house painter and doesn't report the income. If they have more than $10,000 coming in and out of that account in a year, would they now be detected? Yeah, so if they are not having that, that income reported as part of a W-2 or something like that, then yes, they would fall under this new threshold. This is an annual amount. This is not transaction by transaction, but this is how much money is going in and out of your account every year. Republicans say this is a massive overreach by the IRS, essentially government spying on your bank account. Of course, Democrats say this is just one small piece of information, two small pieces of information, inflows and outflows at the end of the year, how? just like interest income or wages are already reported to the IRS. How much less money will this new version raise? Uh, we don't know the details of that yet. We know that the original version would raise something like $400 billion. Of course, this would be less than that. All right. Elon, thank you very much for that reporting today, our Elon Moy. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.